Welcome to Scream Scene, the horror movie podcast where we watch every horror movie ever made in chronological order, and then we rank them from best to worst. My name's Sarah. And I'm Ben. Thanks for listening to us today. How are you doing, Ben? Pretty good today, actually, Sarah. I'm very excited. We are, as of this recording, playing the first session of our new Star Trek Adventures RPG group tomorrow, and I'm very excited about it. Me too. How are you? Uh, Also excited for Star Trek. (laughs) But yeah, doing good. Making my way through July of 2020. Yeah, aren't we all? What are we watching today? Today, Sarah, we are watching El Hombre Sin Rostro from 1950. Nice, you got a little bit of that uh, rolled R on hombre. (laughs) Yeah, trying my best. Yeah. It's better than I can. I can't roll my R's for shit. Yeah, my Spanish pronunciation's probably all over the map. It's it's not great. I apologize to anyone who speaks Spanish. <laughs> uh, this is another Mexican horror film. Yeah. Uh, coming, I guess that would be 15 years after uh, the previous Mexican horror film that we took a look at, uh, Mystery of the Pale Face. What's the translation for this movie? Ah, El Hombre Sin Rostro is The Man Without a Face. Oh, okay. Continuing the face theme, mm-hmm. Juan Bustillo Oro is uh, establishing his brand. Exactly, yes. This is another Juan Bustillo Oro film. He writes, directs, and produces. Okay. But, you know, it's been some time. Uh, it's It's been 15 years. And if folks have been listening to the episodes in chronological episode number order, it might have been a while since uh, they last heard us talk about Mexican films. So why don't you fill us in on the basics of what we've covered so far? Sure. So this movie came out in 1950. The last Mexican horror movie was 1935. Now, as we said, that was The Mystery of the Pale Face, also by Oro. Um, And he wrote directed and edited it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it was kind of an indie film, very low budget, because that movie was coming in the time when all around the world uh, people were pushing back on horror. Mm -hmm. But he gave it another shot. It was fairly good. We ranked it at number 141. Right. And it had quite a a gothic feel. Yes, it was sort of... Phantom of the Opera... Mad Scientist. But before we get to 1935, let's go back a little further. The very first Mexican horror movie was La Llorona in 1933 from director Ramon Peon. Um, That's currently ranked at number 133, and that's episode 41B if you want to take a listen. Now that movie, it was directed, as I said, by Ramon Peon and was written by a Fernando de Fuentes. That horror bug bit Fuentes and... uh, inspired him to direct the film El Fantasma del Convento in 1934, so the following year, with many of the uh, people involved in La Llorona coming back for that film. Now, as Fuentes directed El Fantasma del Convento, the person who wrote it, or at least co-wrote it, is Juan Bustillo Oro. Mm -hmm. And the horror bug went on to... Bite him. Yes. Bit of a plague metaphor, unfortunately, going on here. Sure. Infectious 
disease of right. yeah. horror. Yeah. Um, and that inspired Oro to write and direct his horror film Dos Monjes in 1934, so later that year. Now, these horror films are episode 46B and 47B, respectively. El Fantasma del Convento ranked at number 52. Yeah. Dos Monjes did not rank. Yeah. We decided it was not quite horror enough. It had a very horror-inspired and German expressionist really inspired ending, but that was kind of it for horror. Yeah, the most of the movie leading up to that is more melodrama. Exactly. Now, unfortunately, Dos Monjes was a bit of a flop for critics at the time as well, so that's why when he went on to do El Misterio del Rostro Pelido in 1935, um, he had to do it through, like, independent producers and scrape together money and wound up writing, directing, and editing the movie, um, just trying to get money together. But he managed to make a horror film that time. So El Misterio del Rostro Pelido was episode 55B, if you uh, want to listen back to that. El Misterio del Rostro Pelido is currently ranked at number 141. And that's kind of where Mexican horror is at. Now, I know Juan Bastillo Oro is known as the father of Mexican horror. We've only seen two movies from him, so I presume that his offspring, as it were, come more in this time period in the 1950s. Is that correct? Yeah, I think that's fair to say. In the 15 years since El Misterio del Rostro Polito, Juan Bastillo Oro has directed 31 films and written 32. So even though Mystery of the Pale Face was kind of a um, flop, it was a failure, uh, it showed in 12 theaters. Um, Can you really call it a failure if, if people just weren't able to see it? <laughs> it didn't... <laughs> if a tree falls in the forest. Right, then. sure. <laughs> It didn't seem to have negatively impacted Oro's career. It negatively impacted Oro making further horror movies, but he went on to keep making movies, and by this point in 1950, he's like an established, well-respected director who has his own production company, Oro Films. Good for him. Now, the primary genres in Mexico at this time were the melodrama and the western. And this film, El Hombre Sin Rostro, began life as a film noir. Interesting. But this film is a mix of a lot of different influences. So there's a film noir influence, but it also started to take on influences from surrealist art, uh, like Salvador Dali kind of stuff, um, and influences from Freudian psychoanalysis. And so with these influences coming in, the movie ended up becoming a full-fledged psychological horror film and is judged by critics to be several years ahead of its time in that regard. Amazing. Mexican film aficionados identify Man Without a Face as having been influenced by Alfred Hitchcock's Spellbound in 1945, which is a psychological thriller, specifically the dream sequence in that movie that was designed by Salvador Dali mm -hmm. and directed by William Cameron Menzies. Meanwhile, this film is regarded by those same aficionados as covering narrative ground that would later be used in Psycho in 1960. That's cool. Kind of a cycle of influence. Right. That said, there is no evidence to suggest that Robert Block or Alfred Hitchcock were familiar with this movie, and the inspiration for Psycho comes from like a real-world event that would not happen for another seven years after this movie. But 
people do like see the similarities and at least you can say that this movie got to those plot elements first. The film stars major Mexican movie star Arturo de Cordova, who appeared in like over a hundred films, both Mexican and American. He made his first film in 1936 and he's probably best known to American audiences for his role in the 1943 version of For Whom the Bell Tolls. He was born in 1908 in the Yucatan, and he was 42 years old at the time of making this film. The lead actress is Carmen Molina, born in 1920 in Mexico City, and she was an acclaimed actress, singer, and dancer in Mexico, perhaps best remembered by American audiences for her appearance in The Three Caballeros. Oh! Yeah, she's one of the uh, singers in that film. Cool. That's, uh, that's an interesting movie. Yes. Very surrealist in and of itself. <laughs> Fair, yeah. I prefer Saludos Amigos. Same. But... Because it actually knows how to end the movie. Fair. <laughs> Highly recognized Mexican actress Keita Lavat, born in 1929, also appears in this film. Uh, she is best known for her long-running roles on various Mexican television series. Uh, her most recent role was on the 2019 TV series La Usurpadora. The Usurper. Right. She is... The like, Usurper? She's... No. She's 91 years old. Don't don't put people into boxes, Ben. People who are 91 years old can usurp things. It's like a... Um, <laughs> romantic sex thriller kind of movie like it's it's like a woman being usurped by like another woman it's it's all sexy and dark because it's mexican tv um <laughs> it's a telenovela the music in this film is by prolific mexican composer raul la vista who is considered one of the premier composers of the golden age of mexican cinema are we currently in that golden age yes okay we sure are and as you can see from the fact that all of these people are major folks, um, this movie was not a cheap indie deal. This was like a major film from a major director from his major production company. That's awesome. Yeah. I'm so excited, Ben. So El Hombre was released on July 7th, 1950. Oh, we're close. We're recording this on July 12th. That's true. So yes. we're, we're close to, um, mm -hmm. I guess, the 70th anniversary. Yes. That's very cool, actually. I hadn't thought of that. Uh, this film was a noted success with audiences and critics. Uh, its popularity with audiences led to a resurgence of horror films in Mexico, um, which is part of why Oro is considered that father of Mexican horror figure. Um, meanwhile, it also won an Ariel Award, which are... The Ariels are like the Mexican Oscars. Okay. And it won that award for Best Score. Oh, cool. And we are seeing this movie today thanks to listener Jeffrey Cohen, who graciously sent us a copy. Thank you, Jeffrey. That's so nice of you. I'm also really excited to see this movie, so I'm, I'm really thankful. Yeah. We'll see what it ends up being. Neither of us have seen it before. Yeah. And it's really interesting how, you know, it starts as a film noir, which has its roots in German Expressionism, mm -hmm. and then it brings in Surrealism, which we've seen that brought into horror through um, Menzies' The Maze. Yes. In Though I think that's like in a year or so, 1951, I think. But still, this is really cool, Ben. Yeah, and we already knew that Juan Bastillo Oro had, like, 
an attraction to expressionist imagery from Das Monjes and El Mysterio del Rostro Polito. So yeah. it all kind of comes together. Like a perfect present for our eyes. Exactly. Yeah. Well, folks, um, I hope you can watch along in some fashion. You're going to hear a brief musical interlude, and when we come back, we will discuss El Hombre Sin Rostro from 1950, directed by Juan Bustillo Oro. See you on the other side, everybody. everybody to Scream Scene. We just finished watching El Hombre Sin Rostro from 1950, directed by Juan Bustillo Oro. Sarah, what did you end up thinking of this movie? This movie's really good. All right. I really enjoyed this. That's good. What did you think? I also thought it was really good. Yeah. Good. Look at this. We're on the same page. <laughs> this movie has kind of like a... It, it has layers. I'll say it that way. It's like an onion. Right. Because it is, it's got flashbacks within flashbacks. Yep. And, like, dreams within flashbacks. And sort of a complicated puzzle to be put together by the characters. So why don't we talk about the story and uh, get our bearings a bit? Sure. So it opens, just throws you right in to a dream sequence from the mind of Juan Carlos Lozano. And he's dreaming about these funeral processions going by. These are the women that have been murdered by this criminal he's chasing, uh, known as the Mutilator. And this older woman is narrating to him, like, these are the women, you could have saved them, this is all your fault. Look, there's the murderer kind of walking away from you. And sure enough, there's a figure in, like, a trench coat and a black hat walking down a surrealist lit street. Carlos goes, shoots the man, he doesn't die, and when he gets to the man, he's wanting to see his face, and he turns around and there's no face. That's when the title screen comes up, and we get the credits. Exactly. So it just, like, throws you right in. After the credits, we see Dr. Eugenio Brittle driving home, and he seems to be in a bit of a daze. He leaves his car door open, he gets into the house, and you'd think he was raised in a barn because he does not shut any doors. Hmm. And he starts writing out that tonight I became a murderer. Here's what happened. And then we go into the flashback. Yeah, very film noir-esque opening. We're on a dark street when the flashback starts, and we see a couple of sex workers walking down the street. Uh, one of them gets into a car with a John, and the other one sees someone walking down the street towards her, and she's like, oh, perfect, like, here's my ride for the night. And this person, this silhouette coming towards her, starts to become menacing, and he runs over and attacks her. This woman is thus the next victim of the mutilator. Um, her body is being examined by police the following day, and Juan Carlos is the lead police investigator. But he's at his wit's end. Um, he can't figure out what's going on. Like, there's no clues. This guy attacks women 
but it just seems to be random. There's no correlation with age, with location. Nothing connects the victims there except being women. So he's ready to resign. Now, the police doctor is Dr. Eugenio, and he is friends with Juan Carlos, and he tries to talk Juan out of resigning. He's like, you know, I know you have a fear of failure. Maybe that's what's keeping you from being a little more daring in this case, but if you resign, then this case is completely out of your hands and you can't do anything to help stop future victims from being attacked. So let's put our heads together and try to figure this out. And Juan says, okay, well, I know that there's this nightclub. We can go there and see if we can pick up any rumors about this guy. Yeah, they're staking the place out because it's a seedy dive. Um, from my perspective, it just looks like a regular, like, dance club. Like, this yeah. does not look like anything seedy is going on. Although there is an entire table full of gangsters who are like, oh, we can't do anything because Detective Lozano's sitting over there with his buddy or whatever. <laughs> While at this nightclub, Juan Carlos is there with uh, Eugenio, and Juan is just getting, like, really upset at seeing PDA. Public displays of affection. Yep. There's this one couple on the dance floor, and they're basically making out uh, as they dance. He just gets so riled up, he goes over, slap, like pulls them apart, slaps the woman, and punches the guy. Just like no provocation. And so Eugenio has to like drag him out of there, and he's like, "What the fuck is going on with you, Juan?" And Juan Carlos goes, no, I, I think I'm just under a lot of pressure right now. Like, I, I haven't been able to sleep. I've been having these really weird dreams. And Eugenio is like, well, you know, I'm a doctor. Um, why don't we do some psychoanalysis to help you figure out what's going on and try to help you out here? So they begin this psychoanalysis therapy. And Juan Carlos describes the dream we saw in the opening. And he also describes a dream where he was wandering through these streets that was lined with these genderless statues. But it, he could feel that while they were genderless, um, that these were clearly, like, sex workers. He uses poor words. He yeah. says that they were cheap sluts, basically. Yeah, and these are, like, completely, yeah, genderless, um, affectless surrealist statues that have, like, a vaguely humanoid, like, shape, but there's no identifying anything about them. Yeah, it, they look like something you would find in, like, a modernist art exhibit. And he's really bothered by these statues in this dream. And he keeps going down, and he, he walks down this spiral staircase to a place that's, like, a cold, dark place that almost feels like a dungeon. And he hears the cries of this being that is chained up. And for people in the audience who might be familiar with Freudian theories or psychoanalysis, this would be the id, mm. I think. Sure. Um, we don't really see the figure. It's just um, a shadowy figure. Um, we see the shadow. And it's like this big burly thing chained up. And Juan Carlos describes that in this dream, he unchains this creature. Yeah, he keeps calling it a monster. And... I think, even though we don't never see it clearly, I think what they're doing for the visual is it's a dude in an ape suit. I think so as 100%, well. percent, it's a dude in an ape suit. But they don't try to make that explicit. Yeah, it's not. It's not what they're like drawing your attention to. Yeah, I think they just used an ape suit because it had like the bulkiness that they were going for. Mm -hmm. Anyways, now that this creature is on the loose in his dream, the creature goes to that first 
street with those statues and just begins destroying them. And then the creature transforms into the faceless man, the embodiment of the mutilator. And so this analysis, the psychoanalysis is going on and Eugenio is like, okay, tell me about the woman in that first dream. And Juan Carlos is like, yeah, that was my mom. I mean, no, it wasn't. So it was his mom. Eugenio is like, well, tell me about your mom. Turns out she was very controlling. Um, I would probably characterize the way that her behavior is as uh, narcissistic. Mm -hmm. Basically, she won't allow her son to have any kind of relationship, really romantic specifically, but any kind of relationship, because he is hers. Yeah, she's very possessive. Mm -hmm. It's it's the only woman in your life should be me, your mother. Yes. Um, very controlling of his life. She actually ends up sabotaging Juan Carlos's romantic relationship with his childhood sweetheart, Anna Maria. She does this by, you know, berating Anna Maria for taking her son away. And when Juan Carlos stands up to his mother, she uh, has almost like a heart attack or a stroke. She has a very serious illness. And he goes, oh, I'm, I'm so sorry that you're on your deathbed because of Anna Maria. I actually hate her. I, I'll never leave you. And um, the mom gets better. So that's how she sabotages the relationship. Yeah, there's like an implication that Eugenio kind of like hints at here that like Ma wasn't sick. Yeah. Right? Like that this was just a big guilt trip to get him to be like, oh no, you know, I, I never loved her, etc. Because she ends up dying two years later anyway. Um, that being said, it would be in line with the melodrama genre that was popular in Mexico at the time for people to do things like get sick because of a strong emotion or like die because they heard something that they didn't want to hear or whatever. Yeah. Now, this is their very first psychoanalysis session and they have gone deep. Yeah. Uh, so... <laughs> It's at this point that Juan Carlos is like, fuck this. No, I, I don't want to do this anymore. And he heads off home to his hometown of Guadalajara. Now, Ana Maria, like, they were childhood sweethearts because she's an orphan and was taken in by his mom to be raised in, like, an actual household. Um, but she's also kind of, like, the person who runs the household when Juan Carlos isn't around. Yeah, I think he's supposed to be with, like, the Mexico City police, right? Yep. So, yeah, so, like, she's just been there at the house this whole time. And he basically goes back home as a retreat, but not really to reconcile or anything with Anna Maria. In fact, he's quite cold to her. Um, they have a little bit of a spat, so Juan Carlos goes to leave and take, like, a walk in the night, uh, when, as he's leaving his house, he sees that their maid is, like, making out with her fiancé on the front stoop. And he's like, what the fuck? And Anna Maria says, no, like, that's Rosa, our maid, like, and that's her fiancé who comes by, like, every Sunday night to, like, say hi to her. They're getting married in a month, like, it's fine. And he's like, no, you're fired, Rosa. Get out, grab your things, get out. I don't care that it's, like, past midnight. You need to get out of our house right now. This is a decent house. <laughs> yeah. Yikes, dude. So he fires Rosa, she goes out walking, and we see that she is promptly attacked by someone. We can only presume the mutilator. The following morning, the police come to 
Juan Carlos's residence, and they're like, yeah, hey, uh, your, your maid, Rosa, she's dead from the mutilator. And Juan freaks out. He's like, he's taunting me. He, he's followed me here. He must know who I am. And this whole time he's been feeling like the mutilator's taunting him in certain ways. Um, for example, um, every victim is attacked with almost surgical precision with um, a scalpel or some kind of very precise knife. Um, and Juan is convinced that that's like a way of taunting him because he was on his way to be a doctor when he decided to quit and become a police detective instead. This sort of thing. So now it's like really hit home for him and he's like really freaked out. At that moment, Eugenio shows up and he's like, hey, yeah, I'm also in Guadalajara. Um, I wanted to check in on you. And Juan Carlos is very suspicious of this. He's like, you got here like yesterday and the mutilator is also here. What's going on? And he accuses Eugenio of being the mutilator. Eugenio's like, what? No, calm yourself down. Like, Yeah, his like main bit of evidence, other than the coincidental arrival, is like, he now, his persecution complex has now gotten so bad that he thinks that Eugenio's attempts at psychoanalysis were like, attempts to like, purposely screw with his brain. Basically, Juan Carlos thinks that he's Will Graham and that Eugenio is Hannibal Lecter. That's <laughs> what he thinks is going on. And I will call back to, like, the beginning of this flashback of, you know, Eugenio writing out, like, I'm a murderer, this mm -hmm. is my confession. So it's, for the audience, they might be like, oh, shit, maybe it is Eugenio. Especially because there's been some scenes where, like, Juan Carlos will leave a room and Eugenio's there and he'll have voiceover as he's looking like squinty eyed at Juan Carlos leaving being like, I had him headed right in the direction I wanted him or whatever, which like could be interpreted as like, you know, his treatments that I am giving him in psychoanalysis are heading in the correct direction towards him getting better. But like, why would you say it that way? Yeah. <laughs> but Juan is eventually convinced that Eugenio is, is not, in fact, involved. Um, and Eugenio's like, Juan, you're, you're really losing it. Like, look, your room is a mess. Your, your, your suitcase is still here. And it hasn't been unpacked, and you've been here for, like, a week. And, oh, you have a scalpel in your, your suitcase? This, is, is this from when you used to do doctor work? And Juan Carlos is like, I didn't put that there. Why is that there? That I don't understand. What What is going on? Yeah. And the doc's like, no, no, no. Like, the scalpel's not important. What's important is that, like, you aren't, like, paying attention to the world around you. And he's like, no, you don't understand. <laughs> I, I wouldn't have put that there. <laughs> yeah. I threw out all my med student shit. <laughs> so, Eugenio's like, okay, just calm down. Everything will be fine. We can continue some of our sessions. But let's call it a night and I'll come back tomorrow that night. Juan Carlos, he, he goes to sleep, and the way that the shot is, is like, the camera's on Juan Carlos falling asleep on the chair, it pans over to a window, and the sun goes down and it gets dark, and then it pans back over to Juan Carlos, and he wakes up, and his hands are covered in blood, and he's freaking out, and he, in his panic to get to the bathroom to wash it off, he's getting bloody handprints all over the walls, all over the door frames, his towels are white, so it's yeah. like, ugh, the worst time to have blood on your hands. Right. And he's washing it off, but it's almost like the blood won't come off because he's continually bleeding. 
and he frantically calls for Anna Maria to call up Eugenio. Now, Eugenio arrives. Anna Maria has not been allowed into the room, uh, so he goes in, and Juan Carlos is like, Doc, my hands! What the fuck is going on? And Eugenio's like, Your hands are clean, dude. This towel is clean, my dude. There's no handprints on the walls. It was a hallucination. It's okay. And Juan Carlos is like, Okay, well, here's the dream I had right before everything happened. (laughs) Um... And in this dream, he was following this hand that was beckoning him closer, and it turned out that hand belonged to his mother, leading him to this pool. And he puts his hands into this pool of water, and he realizes it's just a giant pool of warm blood. And he's freaking out in the dream. He looks up at his mom that led him here, and she transforms into the faceless man. And that's when he awoke. And Eugenio looks... A little panicky. And we get a little bit of, like, his narration saying, like, this is when I knew shit had hit the fan. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So he calms Juan Carlos down, gives him a sedative so he can actually sleep. And Eugenio is like, welp, Juan Carlos is the mutilator. (laughs) And so he goes to Anna Maria and he sits her down and he's like, Juan Carlos is asleep. But when he awakes, we need to figure out what to do. Because he's the mutilator. And Anna Maria's like, no, that's not possible. He's like, no, it is. He has a split personality. Because in order to satisfy his mother's wants and desires and expectations, Juan Carlos repressed his own emotions for things like, namely, love for you, but all other emotions that weren't pleasing to his mother. Yeah. And him releasing the id, as I kind of described before, releasing that creature, was that other personality coming out. And uh, that other personality has been coming out and enacting these murders um, without Juan Carlos actually being aware of it. And Anna Maria's like, well, fuck. Man. Still love him, though. And the doc's like, mm. I think about things. Don't rush in. <laughs> so Anna Maria goes to bed and she locks her door. Eugenio stays the night um, at the house uh, just so he can be around. In the middle of the night, Eugenio awakes and he hears sounds coming from Juan Carlos's bedroom. And it's like someone trying to open the door. And we're seeing all of this from Eugenio's perspective of like hearing pacing and noises. Yeah. And he had like given Juan Carlos a sedative mm-hmm. to knock him out, to put him to sleep after like the dream conversation and then locked him in his room. So like there shouldn't be any noises from up there. Like the doc's reaction is like, okay, I gave him enough sedative that like if he's awake, there's something wrong. Yeah. It turns out, yes, he is awake. And he's looking pretty crazed. He has the scalpel in his hand. And he's wandering around the room and he's like, Ah, I shall go through the window. (laughs) And he does so quietly. He hops over some balconies to get to Anna Maria's room. He comes in. She awakes, hears him, sees him, is completely freaked out because he looks completely deranged. And she's calling out for the doctor. Now, because she had locked her door, Eugenio can't get in. So he's banging on the door, and we see Juan Carlos getting closer and closer, and just as he's about to stab with the scalpel, bang! Eugenio has come in and shot his friend Juan Carlos. 
Horn Colors collapses, and um, the madness seems to fade away from him, and he's back to being himself. Now, he hasn't looked any different. It's not a Jekyll and Hyde situation. He just doesn't look like he's about to murder someone. And he's like, what is happening? I, How did I get here? I was protecting Anna Maria. And Eugenio is like, yeah, you fought the mutilator and killed him, but you're mortally wounded now. But you did protect Anna Maria. It's okay. And Juan Carlos dies. We come back to the opening before the flashback, and Eugenio is like, and that's how I killed someone. That's how I became a murderer. And he calls up the police, and he's like, at this address, there's a murderer waiting for justice. And Come arrest me, yo. Yeah. And that's the end. Yeah. So I feel like there's a lot to say about this movie. Where do you want to start? I will just say that uh, if you ask anyone who actually knows what they're talking about, Sigmund Freud's work is bunk and should not be used as a basis for therapy, but... I understand how his theories and psychoanalysis kind of grew beyond him and especially came into the popular cultural consciousness, um, and I will just leave it at that. I just feel like it's good to be like, Freud sucks, and move yeah. on from there. I mean, we've had that discussion before. I forget what episode it was where Freud came up, but like we've talked about this and the way that like Freud's legacy in the field of psychology is complex. Um, but psychoanalysis, uh, specifically the idea of like dream analysis and like dreams being symbolic of like your inner psyche, mm -hmm. um, which that particular part of Freud's theories is not really taken seriously by anyone anymore, but it's very useful in a narrative context Absolutely, and lets you do some really cool stuff. Like the dream sequences in this movie are a very wonderful mixture of Freudian style dream analysis and the way that those symbols are supposed to work in Freudian uh, theories and in like Jungian as well um, with like surrealist imagery and yeah. using that surrealist aesthetic. Surrealist aesthetic comes straight out of German expressionism, at least as it, as it is here. Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, absolutely. So it's really, really cool. Um, very stylized. I really enjoyed seeing it. I, I will put out there as well that I feel like nowadays you can see the twist coming a mile away. Oh, yeah. I definitely want to talk about that a lot more. But, um... but like, part of that, and I think a big part of that, is in our day and age, crime thrillers are everywhere. Like, I, I just keep thinking about, like, criminal minds. But each episode would have been something a little bit like this. Okay, so first off... How early in the movie did you have everything figured out? Like, the minute that, um, they, so they are examining the sex worker's body and they're like, yeah, it was clearly done with a scalpel or some, someone who has like some sort of medical experience. And then I think it's the next scene that they mention offhand that Juan Carlos had, like used to be a doctor. Yep. And I was like, well, yep. he's the murderer then. <laughs> yep. Yeah, that is exactly when I had it figured out. And, like, because we'd already gotten the first dream sequence, like, that was enough evidence for me to go, the reason he's afraid of catching the murderer is because he's the murderer, and the person who Eugenio killed 
at the start of this flashback is Juan Carlos, and that's why he's a murderer, and they're only framing it in that way to make you think that maybe it's Eugenio. Because, like, the whole idea of Eugenio being like, I've, I'm a murderer, here's my confession, is ridiculous when, like, he killed Juan Carlos to stop him from killing Anna Maria. Like, and yeah, he's that's a, a self-defense. And he's, like, a police doctor, right? So he would just phone up the cops and be like, hey, um... I, we've got a situation here. Here's what happened. Right. Um, it's it's framed that way to give you someone else to suspect Juan Carlos. Because, like, as you said, the reason that you and I were able to see that ending coming a mile away is because the... Like, I don't know if the... Oh, the detective is also the killer unknowingly trope had been used before this. Um, certainly it's the first time we're seeing it in a movie we've watched for the show. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I think it has its roots a little bit in the hands of Orlock. Well, yeah, and it's... A little bit. Well, because it all feeds back, like, the split personality thing mm-hmm. all feeds back, narratively at least, into Jekyll and Hyde. Yes, that's very true. But, but I think, like, the trope you were speaking of, yes, this is the first time we're seeing it. Yeah, the first time we're seeing it. I'm trying to say that, like, maybe it was in some thriller movies or something before this, but regardless... It's a very early instance of it. This probably was more shocking for an audience in 1950. From our perspective, the problem is that this trope has been done so many times. Everywhere. Yeah, this this whole idea of like, you know, oh, the reason you can't catch the killer is you are the killer, right? Yeah. Like, And then because you had brought up Psycho in the context setting, mm-hmm. I was... As soon as they identified the woman in his dream as being the mom, I was like, ah, that explains why it's all women. Yeah, exactly. Um, And I think the reason why they try to push Eugenio on you as a suspect is just because even if you go back to 1950 and that trope isn't super well known, the problem with this movie as a murder mystery is that there are too few characters, right? The world is very small. Ultimately, there are three characters, really, four, I guess, including mom, uh, who's dead, So it's Anna Maria, Eugenio, and Juan Carlos, and we know it's not Anna Maria. So it has to be Eugenio or Juan Carlos, or the only other option is the murderer could turn out to be, like, a complete unknown, and the murderer's identity isn't the point of the movie, right? Like, the point of the movie was getting to the bottom of Juan Carlos's psychological problems, or something like that. That could have been an ending. Yeah. But once you kind of eliminate Eugenio as a suspect, it's like, well... Yeah, Yeah. I I think there's a point in the movie itself, irregardless of outside context, where it's obvious. But certainly, because we're very genre-savvy here in 2020, yeah, like, I was right there with you, like, the second it was like, you used to be a doctor, right, detective? It was like, okay, he's the murderer. Why (laughs) Why else would your detective have a backstory where he dropped out of med school? That's so, like, bizarre and specific. Yeah. I will just add a caveat to what you're saying. Like, yes, you can kind of figure it out because our cast is so small, but I really appreciated how small the cast was because it felt so precise in its storytelling. It didn't have extraneous characters. Because it was so focused, it was able to maintain the tension that was throughout. Um, It was very good. Yeah, it manages to get a lot of effective drama out of the fact that it's mostly just dialogue scenes between two people, right? The movie is mostly just a series of conversations between Juan Carlos and Eugenio, broken up by some dream sequences and a flashback. Yeah, that's what was really interesting to me. Um, 
yes, it's like mainly these scenes of people talking, but when we see murders happen or mm. violence happen, it's silent. Yeah. Yeah, it's very quiet. Yeah. They make a point of talking about how the murderer is very quiet, right? It's very effective. It comes back to like something that my my dad likes to say a lot, which is like to him like you don't need big action sequences and a lot of money to make a good movie. Like if you are a good enough writer, you can write a movie that's just two people talking in a room and it's just as interesting, right? Like that's the kind of movie my dad likes is yeah. two people talking in a room. But uh, he hasn't seen My Dinner with Andre, right? That's right. Well, it has to still be interesting, <laughs> is the thing. Um, Arturo de Cordovas gives a very good performance as Juan Carlos. Yes. He, you know, goes between being frightened, being enraged, being intense, being confused. He has to believably inhabit all these very complex emotions within this, like, single character and make it all feel like a single character. And he does it very, very well. And it doesn't feel... Like, it's it's interesting that you brought up the melodrama earlier, um, as well as in the context setting, because he doesn't do it in a soap opera kind of melodramatic way. Yeah, he feels very believable. Yeah, it's very well done. Um, this feels, especially because of how focused the storytelling is about the relationships between these people, it feels like a melodrama turned horror movie. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I would think that basically what you're seeing here is melodrama tropes and film noir tropes coming together and the result being a horror film. The melodramatic elements inform like some of the parts of the plot that are a little like weird, you know, like Eugenio having to like write a confession letter that's like super <laughs> overwrought and yeah. you know, or Anna Maria like having stayed at Juan Carlos's house for like the past, you know, 2 3 years or whatever while Juan Carlos like left her or you know, stuff like that. I think that Miguel Ferrez as Dr. Bertel, uh, Eugenio, is mostly pretty good throughout this movie, except for the fact that occasionally he undersells and deadpans too much. It's like they wanted to contrast him with Juan Carlos. So as Juan Carlos yeah. gets more deranged, Eugenio gets more calm. But it does mean that, like, you know, Anna Maria is like, Oh, doctor, like, is he crazy? Is he going to murder people? Is Are we in danger? And the doctor's just like... Well, only partly crazy. He only murders people sometimes. His main danger is to himself. See, I read that as, like, a doctor has to have a certain bedside manner where they aren't panicked like their patients or their mm -hmm. families might be. Right. You know, a doctor has to be able to deliver some pretty tough news to their patients and have it be straightforward. So that's how I read his performance there. I think that's totally fair. I think it's just the fact that that combined with some of his, like, acting earlier in the movie where they're trying to make you think he might be the killer, it all comes across for a while, like, Dr. Bertel's not having, like, recognizable, reasonable human emotional reactions <laughs> to things. Sure. Right? So it's just a little weird. Obviously, the opening sequence is fantastic, but really all the dream sequences are. The man without a face visual is a very strong visual. It's um, He looks like the question. Right. Uh, or, or the blank, if you know Dick Tracy. Um, I looked it up. The blank storyline in the Dick Tracy comic strips would have already happened at this point. Um, not that, like, there was really any chance of anyone being influenced by this movie 
in America, but there's some chance that they would have seen Dick Tracy stuff. Yeah. In Mexico. Yeah, even if, like, uh, Oro wasn't reading Dick Tracy, like, maybe saw the visuals and mm-hmm. had that, you know, in the back of his mind. But it's also not, like... A super difficult visual to, like, conceptually arrive at. <laughs> exactly, yeah. Honestly, like, I know that the name of the movie is The Man Without a Face, but when Juan Carlos first grabs the murderer and turns him around in that first dream sequence, I thought it was going to be his own face. Right. Which and is, then melts it down into no face. No, but, like, it's funny because, <laughs> yes, that is, you, 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 that's how early you predicted the end of the movie. Um, the psychological aspects of this film are pretty interesting. I think... Again, from a modern perspective, they're the kinds of ground we've seen treaded over a few times. Certainly with its emphasis on sexuality and, like, repressed sexual desire, that makes it very Hitchcockian. Yes. Um, The thing that explicitly invites the comparison to Psycho is the mom stuff. Yeah. And, like, the thing about comparing this movie to Psycho, like, I saw this over and over again, like, to the point where someone... Like, in the IMDb trivia section for this movie, it's like, oh, Psycho ripped off this plot nine years later or something. And it's like, while they both have this, you know, his mom drove him to become a psycho killer aspect, the specifics are different enough. Like, Juan Carlos isn't dressing up as his mother, for instance. Um, The specifics are different enough, and the underlying psychology of, oh, your parents are why you're fucked up, is, like, basic enough, and certainly was a big part of Freudian psychoanalysis. Absolutely. uh, That, like, it's totally reasonable that these two stories arrived at, like, these ideas separately. And I think it does this movie a disservice to only be looking at it in the context of, like, a prelude to Psycho. Yeah, because this movie is much more than that. Honestly, I think the biggest inspiration is Jack the Ripper. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And trying to have a a sort of Freudian theory as to what Jack the Ripper's motive could have been. Yes. Um, And it's funny that you bring up Jack the Ripper because, like, it's Jack the Ripper with a bit of Jekyll and Hyde in there. And Jekyll and Hyde, you know, also comes from that same time period and culture that birthed Jack the Ripper, right? Yeah, Yeah. To the point where people thought the guy playing Jekyll and Hyde on the stage was Jack the Ripper because they were contemporaneous. Yeah, exactly. There's, there's, you know, even though it's in a melodramatic context of like, and this is why he mutilates women, there are aspects <laughs> of Juan Carlos's psychology that ring really true. Like, when, at the start of the movie, before we start really digging deep, you know, he he's frustrated with not being able to find the murderer, and he's like, I'm going to resign from the police. And Eugenio goes, you know, are you sure it's not just that you're afraid of failure? And Juan Carlos is like, ah, no, I'm just frustrated. <laughs> and Eugenia's like, well, because this is this always happens to you. Like, whenever you feel frustrated with the thing that you're doing, rather than fail at it, you quit so that you can't fail. Yeah, that's um, what happened to med school. Right. And, like, that feels so true. Yes. You know, the idea of, like, oh, you know, why haven't you pursued your dreams or why haven't you taken that chance or, you know, even something as simple as, like, why didn't you ask that person out? You know, why do you give up on things? It's because, well, what if I fail, right? And then tying that back into 
his mom and, and all this other kind of stuff. Yeah, and I mean, so, <laughs> caveat of my childhood was not a typical one, mm. but I appreciated how they depicted the mom as, like, not a cackling villain, right. but definitely, like, wrong. Yes. Um, yeah, wrong, but believable. Yeah, and I think it's interesting to consider in, like, the wider context of the, like, Catholic, Spanish, Mexican culture, especially of the mm-hmm. time in the 50s. Uh, Mexican culture is, in the 1950s especially, was very macho. Yeah. And, you Oh, know, yeah, and they keep saying, like, you need to be a man, Juan. Yes, and they keep saying that he's a coward. Yeah. Um, but what I thought was interesting about that is they're, they're saying, like, you're a coward, but it's he's a coward because he won't face his fears. And the way he has to face his fears is to go to therapy. Yeah. Which is very different from a lot of the messaging around, you know, going to see a psychologist or going to therapy to this day, which is this idea of, like, that means that you're weak because you can't deal with your problems yourself, right? You're, yeah. you're, you're a weakling because, you, you know, you need to go talk, cry to a psychologist or whatever. And this movie's positing, like, no... The manly thing to do would be to, like, man up and go to a therapist, which I thought was really interesting. Yeah. And the antagonistic relationship with the mother is also very interesting because of, like, you know, if you watch a lot of Mexican films, you know, Latin American films, there's, like, this almost religious, you know, putting mothers on pedestals kind of thing. Because of the Virgin Mary. Because of the Virgin Mary, exactly. This idea of, like, oh, mama, like, I'll do anything for you, and and this kind of thing, and, like, you know, respecting your mother and and all this kind of stuff, and showing the way that that can be turned against someone. Yeah. Right? By someone who's abusing that level of deference that they're getting. Yeah. This is a really good movie in 2020, like, just, you know, watching horror movies, but I think it explains also why it was such a huge success in 1950s Mexico. Yeah, because it was just, I mean, this would have been very different from anything else going on. Absolutely. I mean, this, this could be my own, like, preconceived notions, but when I hear melodrama, um, I think either in, like, the gothic sense or the soap opera sense, and it's very, like, exaggerated emotions, Whereas in this film, yes, there's exaggerated emotions, but they have a certain level of weight that doesn't always feel like it's there. Um, that's kind of why, like, gothic or soap opera leads into camp really easily. Yeah. Um, here, it felt like there's a lot of weight going on, both in the way that things were filmed, um, like with extreme close-ups and the lighting and the music, um, but also in the acting itself. So it definitely would have been, like... Similar but different enough and really pushing things forward yeah. for the the film industry at the time. Yeah, and it's always keeping things a little bit grounded. You know, with the doctor implying that, like, his mom's, you know, emotional illness was was kind of faked to manipulate him, right? Even though it would have been totally within the bounds of narrative conventions of the time for her to actually be like, oh... You've broken my heart, son. Blah. Blah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> do you want to get into ranking this film? Yeah, let's do it. So where were you thinking of ranking this movie? Well, Ben, my eyes were first drawn to another serial killer movie we've seen, The Leopard Man from 1943, currently ranked number 36. 
and I was like, Val Luton, you did a good job, you know, you, you did good, but I think this is better. And I worked my way up from that, so 36 is my floor, and I stopped at 29 with Vampire from 1932, because I was like, hmm, Vampire is entirely a dream sequence. <laughs> and while the dream sequences in El Hombre Sin Rostro are very well done, they're removed enough from reality that it's kind of like... A, a level of distance, whereas vampire is like what is reality? What is the sure. dream? What is the nightmare? Yeah, because vampire takes place in a nightmare world, but it takes place in that world, yeah. right? Yeah, there's no the hero wakes up and it was all a dream and he's fine. Yeah, yeah. So my range is twenty nine to thirty six. So that's really interesting because I started in the exact same place as you. I thought. Okay, we must have had other serial killer movies before now, right? And I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, uh, The Leopard Man, right. So I looked at that. Ironically, I went the opposite direction as you. I thought The Leopard Man was better than this. And to be fair, I think part of that may have been coming from seeing the ending of this movie coming so early that even as the movie was, like, doing good and interesting things, there was still a part of me that was like, yep, Mm-hmm. Yep. Get on with it. You know, like, when someone's telling you, like, a news story that you've already read the article of, and, like, even though you keep trying to be like, yeah, I've read it, like, I know, they keep telling you the article anyways, and you're, like, <laughs> just having to sit there and wait for them to finish, because that's the only way they'll stop. So I went below Leopard Man. And it's funny, because a couple spots below Leopard Man is Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, which is also very comparable to this movie. Yeah, the 41 version. That's right. And so I'm like, okay, this feels like I'm in the right neighborhood then. Um, and I kept looking down because of, I think also because of the fact that I was kind of on the fence about how much this was a horror movie versus mm -hmm. how much this was like a psychological thriller. Um, I agree that it is a horror movie, but it had enough feet in the psychological thriller pool that I was like, well, maybe some movies that are more horror-based should go above it. So I kept kind of looking down, you know, past things like Student of Prague and The Amazing Mr. X and The Very Nightmarish, It Came From Outer Space, and I got to House of Dracula. I was like, this is definitely better than House of Dracula. Like, let's not <laughs> be kidding. So my range was 36 to 47. So I think looking at your range and looking at my range... The central question we have to answer is, is this better or worse than The Leopard Man? Yeah. And I understand where you're coming from with grappling with where this sits on that spectrum of horror to thriller and psychological thriller, because it is a very fine line. Like, I do believe that it's more of a spectrum than a yes or no question. I also see where you're coming from of, like, you know, oh, I've seen this before. Mm -hmm. I know I know the twist. And we shouldn't be really judging these movies based on, like, the fact that we're here in 2020. But it was just, it affected my experience watching the movie. I have to ask, then, because you and I were both like, I know the twist, pretty early on. When Eugenio wakes up in the middle of the night and he hears someone walking around... Juan Carlos's room. Mm -hmm. What was your experience of that moment to the point where Juan Carlos dies? Um, 
just kind of like, yep, this is what I figured the ending of this movie would be. Okay. I was very, like, tense. I was like, oh. I was like, oh man, is someone walking in there? Is there actually, like, some rando killer out there who is just taunting Juan Carlos? Because, like, we've been in the United States for a while. Mm-hmm. And we've been just bombarded with the Breen office. Mm-hmm. And this movie is like, no, we're going to show you blood. We're going to show you sex workers. Like, it blows the brain off. Like, I think, like, the brain office would have, like, multiple strokes trying to look at this sure. movie. And so I was like, would they go so far as to say that the cop is the killer? Or would it just be like, hey, turned out to be a masked man all along? So I was like, is someone walking around there? So I was kind of like oh, what is going on? And then, like, the shot where, like, the door is trying to open, it's like, what if he gets out? <laughs> like, what is... Yeah, so I I was amped up. Sure, yeah. I think that's, you know, definitely enough to explain, like, why you're on the it's better than Leopard Man side of things. Yeah, because Leopard Man had, like, that very strong scene or sequence that's, like... Near the start, when the little girl gets eaten by the leopard. yeah. But there are strong scenes like that throughout El Hombre Sin Rostro. Like, uh, the sex worker being murdered, um, the woman in the car screaming and you seeing blood come through the door. Um, even when Juan Carlos is coming towards Ana Maria as he's coming out of the window. Like, oh, it's yeah. very, and, very intense. And that, like, you know, the villain is coming at the girl in her night clothes through her bedroom window and she's in bed and he's approaching her and threatening her or whatever. Like we've seen that a million times. We are going to see that a million times, but this movie did it very, very well. I was very impressed with it. It didn't feel rote. It didn't feel, you know, like, Oh yeah, it's one of these scenes, whatever. Like they somehow managed to give that very common scene, like some life again. So that was really impressive. And you think back to the leopard man, like, Yes, it has that scene where the girl gets eaten. It also has a similar scene to Cat People of the clip-clop of the heels and mm-hmm. the following through the night. And that's good, but it is just kind of ripping off its own previous film. I think one of the big problems with Leopard Man also is that it kind of botches its ending. Yeah. Like, the ending conceptually on paper is good, but the low budget means that they can't really have it be as impactful as they wanted it to be. So, okay, I'm, I'm willing to see your point. Above Leopard Man is Dead of Night, and Dead of Night, being an anthology, is inherently a mixed bag. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, the strongest segment in Dead of Night is probably the ventriloquist dummy, which is why that's the segment everyone remembers. And, I mean, that's also a the killer is me, maybe... Yeah, that's true. Um, I think that segment does it better because that's also the first time that you see a ventriloquist dummy. Yes, the that evil, way. the evil dummy. Um, trope, yeah, and like the use of voice was very interesting. This like Alumbra uh, Sinrostro is is very effective, but it's much more focused on like psychoanalyzing. Juan Carlos. Juan yeah. Carlos, rather than, like, the experience of, like, someone being out of their mind. So, yeah. I also, like, was disappointed that the, like, the mutilator, like, the killer personality didn't, like, get its own voice or get to talk. Yeah. Um, I was, like, continually expecting the, like, 
psycho-style twist of the, like, mutilator speaking in his mom's voice or something like that. I think because of the fact that Dead of Night's a little uneven, I'd be willing to go above it, but I don't think I'd be willing to go higher than the maze. Yeah. No, I... I think... Oh, Dead of Night... Yes, the ventriloquist dummy segment is the most memorable, but it also has the framing narrative, mm-hmm. um, which is really effective. It's a really cool, because it's the time loop narrative, yeah. right? That, like, inspired a bunch of physicists to wonder if the universe is a time loop. Um, where time becomes a loop? Yes. Time becomes a loop? Yes. Uh, this is tough, but I think Dead of Night above El Hombre San Rostro... And then Leopard Man below. Okay, I'm willing to go for that. So entering the list at the new number 36 is El Hombre Sin Rostro from 1950, directed by Juan Bastillo Oro. I know I just made that decision, but I'm still like, I don't know if maybe you should go above Dead, Dead of Night. So let's sit with this. <laughs> and listeners, if you want to contest this or any other ranking... You can drop us a line through our appeals box at screamscenepodcast.tumblr.com. That's where you can find the full list, the other episodes we've mentioned today, our appeals box. And you can also reach out to us directly at screamscenepodcast.gmail.com or over Twitter at underscore screamscene. Screamscene updates every Wednesday on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you get your podcasts by subscribing to our RSS feed. If you'd like to help the show out, you can do that by leaving us a rating or a review wherever possible, sharing the show on social media, or heading over to our Patreon at patreon.com slash screamscenepodcast, where you can become a patron of the night for as little as a dollar a month. We love to hear from our listeners. Uh, Comments on the episodes are welcome on Tumblr or SoundCloud, whatever, and... If you are one of our patrons, you get access to special bonus content from us as well at the $5 and $10 levels. Uh, We have a Patreon goal of $150 a month, and when we reach that, we will be doing bonus reviews of horror-adjacent movies, um, which in the case of Mexican cinema might include movies like the El Santo movies and, and related Lucha Libre films of luchadors fighting like vampires and mummies and werewolves and shit amazing yeah uh so if you want to see that head i on do over, head on over to patreon.com slash scream scene podcast what are we watching next week ben well sarah next week we are staying in mexico but we are catching up to the present day ah uh, rejoining the timeline correct for el monstro resuscitado from 1953 the resuscitated monster you've got it by director Chano Urueta. Interesting. Uh, a Frankenstein-esque movie? You got it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, with a name like that. Mm-hmm. Well, we will see you next week, Creatures of the Night. Bye. Bye. Bye.